Let's turn together for our passage for this evening, uh, which is John 15, verses 5 to 11. John 15, verses 5 to 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. So I suspect uh, that many of you here this afternoon, this evening, have heard of Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a a well-known author. He is a very well-known preacher, and he's particularly well-known for the work that he's done in New York City. Uh, He's uh, worked for a long time preaching the gospel there, preaching the gospel to many people who had never heard it before in their lives. And Tim Keller's written books on preaching, he's given speeches on preaching, and he gives uh, a lot of wonderful, unique insights uh, into how to preach the gospel to those who have never heard it before. And Tim Keller, he has one really fascinating observation, uh, one that may surprise us, it certainly surprised me. He says that when you preach in New York City or uh, another uh, city like that, somewhere where a large majority of the people that you're preaching to... uh, don't really know the gospel, uh, don't really care about religion. He says that you're, in a sense, preaching to people who are kind of not bound to any law. Uh, They're just living according to their own feelings, according to uh, what they want to do. They're kind of a law unto themselves. And yet what Tim Keller said is that if you're going to preach to them, uh, what you want to make sure that you do is that you preach against legalism. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? Uh, as you might know, a legalism is depending on the law rather than depending on grace, rather than depending on the gospel. It's depending on the law to try and um, ingratiate yourself, to, to make yourself in God's good books, so to speak, to trying to earn God's favor. And so it seems very strange that Tim Keller would say that if you're preaching to people who are just a law to themselves. What you want to attack is a belief in legalism, the belief that if you follow God's law, then you'll earn his favor. But Tim Keller explains why. He says because if you go up to people and you tell them that God is unhappy with how you're living, you're following your own rules, and the way that you're living is wrong, and God's taken notice of it, as soon as you say that to people, Their brain is immediately going to jump to legalism. Their brain is immediately going to tell them, okay, this guy is telling me that God has rules, and if I want God to love me, if I want God to save me and bring me to heaven, then I have to follow his rules rather than my own rules. But that's that's legalism. That's putting the law over the gospel of grace. 
But yet, legalism is exactly what we're drawn to. It's what we're naturally pulled towards. Uh, to illustrate this fact, this week uh, I learned from a study from the USA that approximately 50% of Americans, uh, America, as you know, uh, many people profess to be Christians there. Well, approximately 50% of Americans believe that as long as you live, and I quote, a basically good life, so, so you're basically following God's laws, then God will be happy with you and he'll uh, warmly receive you into heaven. Uh, God will be happy with your life simply because you're following uh, some of his rules. And I hope you see the problem here. Uh, because God's word doesn't teach anything close to this. Even though you and I are hardwired to think in this way, uh, the Bible actually directly opposes it. And I wonder if someone came up to you with this kind of thinking, which uh, I'm sure uh, exists in many places in society, maybe even in our church. Uh, I wonder how you would try and oppose this type of thinking. How would you try and counter this idea that if we follow God's laws, if we want God to love us, then we need to follow his rules and do a better job living the way that he describes in his word? Because I don't know about you, but I think uh, I would be inclined to turn to uh, Isaiah 64, verse 6. It's a passage that I think uh, crushes legalism in a really remarkable way, and I want to I share that with you this evening. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, and uh, he, he brought many messages of judgment uh, before God's people who were rebelling against the Lord. And in Isaiah 64, what we see is Isaiah's sort of prayer of confession. We see that this great prophet uh, on behalf of Israel is going before the Lord in prayer, and he's asking uh, God to forgive Israel's sins. And as he's praying, he says something remarkable. So first of all, that starts off kind of how we might expect. He starts off by asking God to forgive their sins. He asks God to forgive the deeds that they had clearly done against his law and against his will. And that seems a very natural, a very unsurprising. But then after that, Isaiah says something profound. After that, Isaiah prays to the Lord, asking that the Lord might forgive their good deeds. He wants the Lord to forgive their righteous acts. You read in Isaiah 64, verse 6, Lord, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All our righteous acts, their, their best deeds, the ones most in accordance with God's law, Isaiah says they're like filthy rags in God's sight. So whatever else can be said about that text, and I'm sure much could be said, what we need to understand is that this verse, this text, it crushes legalism, doesn't it? It crushes the wrong belief that any of our works can make us right with God. They, they can make God impressed by us. They can make God start to love us more. Because what we see is uh, we can try. We can try and follow God's law that he outlines for us in his word. What Isaiah says is even our most righteous acts, the, the best act we will ever do, when you look at it from God's perspective, it looks like a filthy rack. It doesn't impress him at all. And so what this reminds me of is some time that I spent uh, working as a landscaper when I, I first got my job as a landscaper in high school. 
And so me and another guy, I don't remember why, seems like an odd choice looking in hindsight, but me and another brand new guy, uh, we were left working in a backyard trying to prepare it for sod. So we were going around, we were working super hard, excited about our new job. We were raking and trying to uh, get everything perfectly set up uh, for the next guys to come in and, and lay some grass. And we thought we were doing a pretty good job. Uh, I remember we were patting each other on the back. Uh, we thought that uh, yeah, when the boss showed up, he would be super impressed and super happy with what we had accomplished. Maybe as you can guess, it was not. He was not impressed. He came and he started pointing out the area that we had already done, and he's like, we're going to have to redo all of this. <laughs> it's a mess. And so I think this sort of illustrates the point. Uh, we were brand new landscapers. We didn't know what good really looked like, did we? But the more experienced guy, the boss comes in and he's like, oh, this is, this is going to have to be redone. This isn't, this isn't very good at all. And likewise, we, we can imagine the same thing uh, with our perfect and awesome and holy God and Father, can't we? We do acts that we think are pretty good. We're, we're hoping for a little bit of praise, maybe, maybe a pat on the back. But we know that God looks at them and he can see imperfections that we can't. He can see weaknesses that we can't. And now don't get me wrong, uh, because we know uh, from Scripture that uh, if we're in Christ, if we're united to him, uh, that God loves our good deeds. Uh, he delights in them. You get this picture of uh, a father uh, getting uh, what's probably not a very well-crafted gift from his child. And yet he loves it dearly. He takes delight in that work of art uh, from his kid. And that's the kind of picture that we have uh, that God has uh, of our works if we're in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful truth. Uh, imagining God looking at even our, our filthy rags, uh, these imperfect deeds and delighting in them and smiling down on us and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But what we have to realize is if we're thinking that we can take these good deeds and somehow try and earn God's favor, uh, then we're out to lunch. Uh, these good deeds cannot even begin to impress God. How could they? How could they? This is why Jesus says in the passage that we just read together in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And so just think about it for a moment. I think this is a helpful exercise. Just try and think about some of your best deeds, some of the best deeds that you've done recently. I think about times when you were the most selfless. Uh, you showed the most self-sacrificial love to one of your neighbors or to someone else. Think about the times when you sang the most heartfeltly or, or prayed the most worshipfully. Uh, often these times are, are few and far between, and yet from our perspective, they might look pretty good. But then the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the one who's absolutely perfect, the one who's holy, 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 who cannot even look upon evil, the one whose face we couldn't look at, and survive. He looks upon these deeds and he sees that there's impurity all over them. He sees that they're off-white, that they're dirty rags, because they're still stained by our impure thoughts, our impure motivations, our impure priorities. As John Bunyan, a well-known Christian author uh, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress once said, there's enough sin in my best prayer to send the whole world to hell. 
And so we must realize that there's no way, no way these deeds can begin to earn our salvation. I really like the way that Charles Spurgeon, a well-known English pastor, explains this as well. He says that we should picture it in this sense, that before God, we're all criminals. We're all criminals who have been um, declared guilty by God's law. In a sense, we're just waiting for our death sentence. And when we find out that this is the case, what's the solution? If we're in prison waiting for our death sentence, is the solution to try and break our bad habits? Is it to try and uh, read God's law and kind of uh, amend our lives? Is it to try and, uh, as, as Spurgeon puts it, uh, starting to straighten up our hair and fix our clothes and get them in order? Is that the solution to our death sentence? No. How could that possibly help? How could that possibly save us? Instead, there's only one solution. That solution is to go to God and ask him for mercy. Ask him to forgive us. And so the solution for our past and our current and our future lawlessness, the way we constantly rebel against God's law, the solution isn't to preach the law, to preach legalism, to try and work better. But the solution is grace. The solution is to run to God for his mercy and his compassion. And what we learn throughout God's word all over the place is that our God, who is holy, 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 is also incredibly gracious. He is compassionate and merciful. And if we ask him for mercy, he will gladly, gladly give it. You see, he, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth for this very purpose, that he might forgive some. So Jesus came to offer us a free pass from the prison sentence of our own making. And the way that he does this is, incred is incredible. It's by coming to each of us and offering to take our death penalty upon himself. He's willing to die in our place. And in this way, by his blood, he makes us perfectly clean before our God and Father. We heard that from Pastor Ian a couple of weeks ago. He takes our filthy rags and he gives us his perfect spotless righteousness. His perfectly white and clean robes. So no one can ever condemn us or call us guilty ever again. As long as in heaven he stands before the Father's throne. And as the Father says, this is a gift of grace only to be received by faith. Just believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the death penalty he took for us and you will be saved. I hope you can see now that our good deeds cannot make us right with God. They can't even begin to. Because only Christ fulfilled God's law perfectly. Only he loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his mind. Only he loved his neighbors and his enemies, like you and me, perfectly, in fulfillment with God's law. That all of his deeds, they were flawless. His robes were spotless and perfectly white. And if we try and hold up our filthy rags up to them. There's no comparison. And there doesn't need to be. Because Christ's perfect, spotless, righteous robes are offered to you to be received only by faith. And apart from your works, only based on his works. And all our filthy rags of so-called righteousness, they, they need to be discarded of, thrown away. They don't earn us anything and they can't. 
Because our salvation completely belongs to the Lord and his grace. As we read in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what a gift that is. Free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so the solution to lawlessness isn't legalism, but grace. But but what we find throughout history, uh, maybe even in our own lives, that uh, this is a hard truth for some people to accept. That God's grace, that God's forgiveness, his mercy, and heaven is just completely freely offered to us. And this past week, I came across a wonderful story that illustrates that point. As far as I can tell, it's a true story as well. So there's an American missionary who's named David Morse. And he went to India, and he went there to preach the gospel. And after some time there, uh, Morse had not uh, seen many people come to the faith at all, but he had made some really, really wonderful relationships, some really wonderful friendships. And one day, his dearest friend, his dearest Indian friend, who was an elderly man at this point, he came to Morse and told him that he was going to move away. Specifically, he told him that he was getting old and that before he died, he was going to go on a pilgrimage. As part of this pilgrimage, he was going to crawl many miles on his hands and knees to Delhi. And the idea was that uh, this was a sort of penance to earn the favor of the gods that he believed in. He thought in this way he he might begin to produce his own righteousness, to to earn his own salvation, his own pass into heaven. But before this man left, uh, he went to visit Morse at his house. And in his hands, he brought a small wooden box. And he gave it to Morse. And when the missionary opened it, he saw this gorgeous, this sparkling, this breathtaking pearl. And so Morse's friend, uh, he, he began to explain. He said that this pearl, it had been acquired by his only son, who was a pearl diver. And his son, one time when they were out looking for pearls, uh, he, he looked under the water and he saw it. And he dove down to get it. But while he was trying to get it, he stayed underwater too long. And so he retrieved the pearl. Uh, But later on, he he died because of the water that he had inhaled while retrieving this gorgeous, gorgeous pearl. And so this Indian man, he was so thankful to Morse for his friendship that he wanted to give him this this pearl before he left. And it was an emotional moment, as I'm sure we can imagine. Uh, He knew he would never see Morse again. And he wanted to just give him some kind of a picture of how much love he had for him. And so he wanted to entrust him with his most prized possession. And suddenly Morse, the the missionary, he was struck with an inspiration. And so he said to his friend, this is a gorgeous, unbelievable pearl. Let me buy it from you. I'll give you $10,000 for it. I'll, I'll work for you. And his friend was shocked and offended. What do you mean, he said, this pearl is beyond any price. It's a gift. But Moore said, it's too much. The pearl's too beautiful. It's too wonderful of a token. I have to work for it. And he responded, you do not know what you're saying. You could never pay for this pearl. It cost me the life of my son. Whatever you gave me for this pearl would be an insult to me and to him, to his memory. I only offered it as a gift because of how dearly I love you. And so Morris was choked up. 
And he said, my dear friend, don't you see? This is exactly what you've been saying to God this whole time. God is offering you heaven as a free gift. It's so great and priceless that no man on earth could ever buy or earn it. How could they? Even if they could, your life would be millions of years too short. It costs God the lifeblood of his one and only son to earn your entrance into heaven. That's how much it costs. In a million years, in a thousand pilgrimages, you could never earn that entrance. All you can do is accept it as a token of God's immense, his unbelievable love for you, a sinner. Of course, my friend, he said, I will accept this pearl from you in deep humility, praying to God that I might be worthy of it. Won't you do the same with his gift to you? And his friend said, for years now, I could not believe that salvation was free. Now I understand some things are too priceless to be earned. Some things are too priceless to be earned. And that's the lesson that we should learn from God's free grace in Jesus Christ as well. Our flawed works, our filthy rags, they cannot begin. They cannot touch this gift that God is offering to us free of charge. How could they? If we try and offer them to God, it's an offense. It's an offense to the life of Jesus Christ. It's an offense to God himself. He doesn't want our filthy rags to repair the relationship with us. He offers it to us free of charge. And so the natural question that leads out of this, the question uh, that's been dealt with or that's been leveled against Christians and against this doctrine for years then, is then why do good works? Why do good works at all? They don't earn you anything. They, they, don't, they cannot possibly contribute to this salvation that's freely offered from God that you only need to accept. And your good works, they're just like filthy rags. So why do them? And I hope, I hope after that story, the answer is just obvious. If God has given us this incredible gift, how can we go on sinning? How do we hear about this gift every Sunday again and then we leave and we keep on sinning? We hear about Jesus Christ, how much it cost him to set us free from sin. And then we go and sin again. It's unbelievable. Our Savior and our friend died to set us free. How can we go on sinning? I think a beautiful example of this we find in uh, the New Testament. Uh, you might know the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was this tax collector. Uh, he got rich defrauding his own countrymen, charging them too much in taxes. And he was seen as a traitor. He was hated. And one day Jesus sees him. And he invites Zacchaeus to come down from the tree that he was trying to see Jesus from. And he says that he's going to come to Zacchaeus' house. And after he does, after they, ha they have dinner together, and what Jesus says is that salvation came to that household. Zacchaeus came to believe in Jesus Christ. And what we see from Zacchaeus is he doesn't say sweet free salvation, free forgiveness of sins, and then go on living in the same way. Instead, we see the exact opposite, the most radical transformation you could ever uh, possibly even hope to see in such a man. He says, from now on, I'm giving away half of my possessions 
says, everyone I've defrauded, I'm paying back four times as much. Because that's the appropriate response of thankfulness to Jesus Christ's free forgiveness, his free salvation, that he works apart from any of our works. This free salvation that he gives based on deeds, but not based on our deeds, based only on his deeds. And I love this illustration that we have in this passage that we read together, that Jesus gives uh, of how we produce good fruits. He gives a picture of him being a great vine, a healthy vine. And we were just branches. And as we said earlier, apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing to earn God's favor at all. But if we believe in him, we're grafted into him. Our, our branch is taken and added to this vine. What Jesus says in verse 5 is, If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. As we draw from Jesus Christ, as we, we draw from this forgiveness that we hear about in the gospel, as we learn about who he is and what he's done, and he fills us with his Holy Spirit and fills us with faith, faith, naturally drawing from him, drawing from his strength, we will begin to produce good fruits. How could we not? And so as we draw from Christ's many qualities, as we draw from Christ's forgiveness, then this forgiveness doesn't stop with us, but it flows through us. And we begin to, to produce fruits. We become forgiving people. Because how could we not? How could we not? As Christ's love through his word and through our many experiences flows into us, he pours it into our hearts. Love doesn't stop with us. It flows through us. It produces more fruits. How could it not? Likewise, Christ's joy, Christ's patience, all of these things, they begin to produce fruit in our lives as Christ transforms us by his word and spirit. And this takes hard work on our part as well. I think we have a beautiful picture in the Apostle Paul who talks about how he worked harder than everyone else. He was the hardest worker of all. But even this, he says, this was Christ's strength that was working through him. Christ is the one who provides the transformation, the sanctification by grace alone. As we begin to live our lives of thankfulness, we're transformed and bear much fruit. And as we read in John 15, verse 8, this is to uh, Jesus' Father, to our Father's glory, that he can take us, dead branches, and begin to produce good fruit. And, and so the question we have to leave with tonight is, are we beginning to have these fruits of thankfulness in our life? Is Christ beginning to work through us in that way? Because this growth, it comes slowly. It comes too slowly, doesn't it? We sometimes pray that these fruits might grow immediately, but that's not, that's not how it works. You draw from Christ and rely on his spirit. Uh, as we read in this text as well, uh, the vine dresser, the farmer, he comes around and prunes and he waters and fertilizes and eventually fruits start to come. And so if we don't see enough fruit, it doesn't mean go back to the law. If we see that we're still lawless, it doesn't mean start preaching legalism. No, it means go back to Christ. Ask for more grace. Ask for more help. Ask that he might flow more into us. That we might experience more of his love and more of his grace. And that it might flow through us. So we'll also see more fruit. Let's pray together. Glorious Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank and praise you for this unbelievable gift. This unbelievable pearl of great price that we have. 
this gift of salvation that you offer us uh, free of charge, at least free for us. Lord, we know and we realize as we look through our lives that we are sinful to the core on our own. We realize that our best works are like filthy rags. They're all still stained. They're tainted by sin. But Lord, we also know uh, about your great love for us. And Lord, we thank you for the sure salvation that Jesus Christ purchased by his works for us. That this sure salvation that he uh, purchased for us by his obedience, his perfect obedience to our law, and most of all, even by his own precious blood. Lord, this is a, a gift so precious we can't even understand it. Lord, it's a gift that we could never, ever pay for. And so, Lord, we thank and praise you for this incredible, life-transforming, this life-giving gift. And Lord, we ask that each day again you might keep us looking to Christ, the giver of this gift. We ask that you might increase our faith as we look to Christ, that you might increase our thankfulness as we look to Christ, and thus that you might increase our fruit as well. We ask that you might increase this fruit in our lives, that we might be more patient people, more loving people, more kind people, more forgiving people. And we ask that you might do this for our good and for our family's good and our neighbor's good. But Lord, we ask most of all that you might do this for your glory. Lord, we know we're weak and we're sinful, so we ask that for your glory, you might change us. Lord, make even us fruitful. Bring forth a great harvest that is pleasing to you. And we ask these things not because we're worthy of any of them, certainly not. But we pray them in Jesus' name alone. Amen.